A few years ago, my husband and I were devastated by fentanyl overdoses and two stepsons, one from each of our previous relationships. These happened 16 months apart. Incredible anguish ripped our splendid family apart. Currently, we have another son who suffers from a drug addiction for which he has been to rehab several times. We shudder to think of his exposure to fentanyl and our ineptitude to deal with this in any sense of effectiveness. There is such helplessness. When I contemplate the number of parents, siblings, spouses, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and friends who are suffering alongside in this fentanyl epidemic, my heart aches. Fentanyl is now the leading cause of death for people 18 to 49, according to a Washington Post analysis of CDC data. More than 100,000 people died in America from a fentanyl overdose, most involving the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Fentanyl is being added to street drugs of all kinds, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, even counterfeit Adderall pills. It's 50 times more potent than heroin. Fentanyl is a cheap additive that dealers are using to lower costs and make their product more addictive. That's according to the CDC. After the break, we'll discuss the threat fentanyl poses to folks using opioids and recreational drugs and solutions to keep everyone safer. I'm Nyla Budu of Axios, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from Wisconsin is Janet. She lost her daughter to heroin and fentanyl overdose last year. Janet, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nyla. It's my pleasure to be here. Also with us from Philadelphia is Sarah Laurel. She's in long-term recovery from a substance abuse disorder and runs Savage Sisters Recovery, Inc. That's an organization that provides care to people using opioids in Philadelphia. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Janet, your daughter passed away from an overdose almost two years ago. Can you tell us what she was like? Sure. Uh, Our daughter was born in 1989. She was a friendly, happy, precocious, brilliant little girl. And she uh, loved animals above anything else. She, uh, in, in her teens, she developed uh, treatment-resistant depression. And that carried on throughout her life. However, she was able to obtain a degree in veterinary technology, became a very successful veterinary technologist, and uh, was going in and out of recovery. Uh, she would not go to rehab, but she would try Suboxone, and she would be okay for a while, then... The grip of heroin would pull her back. She would even go cold turkey, and the grip would would call her back. Unfortunately, in her late 20s, she met a young man who introduced her to heroin, and the rest, as they say, is history. Janet, how many times do you think she went in and out of rehab? I would say at least six or seven times. And did she talk to you about how, did, did she ever talk to you about how or why she was doing this? You know, I think it was just her depression. I think it was a comfortable cloud to put her in. And uh, she was a very sensitive individual. The, ro- the world was a very cruel place for her. She was somebody who marched to her own drummer in a very rural town, which was very, very unique and threatening to people. And um, I just think she used it as a place to feel comfortable and numb. How did you find out that fentanyl contributed to her overdose? It was the uh, toxicology report. My husband and I actually found her after she had passed. Mm, I'm sorry. Thank you. 
Sarah, I wonder if you can share what your life looked like when you were in active addiction. Uh, sure. I went from being a corporate executive. Um, I received a prescription for opioids for carpal tunnel, and that led me to homelessness and heroin addiction. I was homeless in Kensington, which is um, an open-air drug market in Philadelphia. I have been to treatment 28 times. I've been to jail and I got sober five years ago after experiencing a pretty horrific trauma that left me in a wheelchair. And do you feel like there there was a one point or where you decided there was that there was that pivotal moment or were there a series of them for your recovery? Uh, I mean, well, when I was in the wheelchair, I was able to. I was forced to sit still long enough to see that I could actually maintain sobriety. Um, I was really broken and I was in a dark place and I did not, at that point, I didn't think that there was anything left for me. Um, when I, I can only speak for myself, but when I had discovered the warmth of, of my substance of choice, it, there was a safety in it and detaching from it felt incredibly difficult and almost impossible. And when I was in the wheelchair, I physically could not go and chase the things that I desired so greatly. And in those beginning months, I started to discover who I was again. I became human again. What would you say safety looks like for you now? I'm empowered today. So I think not having the feeling that uh, something else has control over me, feeling like I have a choice. Um, Life in sobriety isn't a cakewalk, (laughs) but there is something that took place with the help of other strong women and my incredibly supportive family. And I kind of rediscovered who I was Um, and safety is the ability to sit still and be with the divine within. Um, and I was always seeking safety in other things that, that did not really exist. So today I feel safe and, and I understand that uh, I have a choice and that I am a good person and, uh, you know, that I can impact and affect positive change within my community. We appreciate Janet and Sarah for sharing their stories with us. If you or someone you know needs help with addiction, you can call the free and confidential treatment referral line. That's 1-800-662-HELP, or you can visit findtreatment.gov. Janet, I know this is something I imagine you're still coping with, but can you share how you and your family has coped with this loss? I will tell you that uh, I was initially catatonic. I was sitting in a rocking chair for the first three months. I'm a very social, outgoing individual. It was difficult for me to leave the home, even though I was retired. I'm a retired naval officer. Uh, My husband and I are both retired, and uh, I was very involved with my community volunteering. That all shut down. And uh, for the first three months, it was my loving, devoted husband, my 104-year-old mother, my siblings, a loving aunt, close friends, Um, my therapist, my massage therapist who offered a compassionate touch, 
they started to help me heal. I, um, I don't know what I would have done without them. I was really, really struggling initially. Uh, our daughter and I were extremely close. And that's when I actually knew something was wrong, was the day that she didn't contact me. We talked every day. And uh, the day she didn't contact me, I knew that there was something wrong. But it was just, I'm a warrior and I have strength. And it's because of the people around me who had faith in me that I would get through this. Um, many people said the wrong things. They told me I was never going to get through it, um, that they expected this, that God doesn't give you anything you can't handle. Uh, this is the worst thing that ever happens to a parent. It's like, I didn't need to hear that. <laughs> you know, people don't know what to say. Just say, I don't know what to say. But I needed people to tell me that they had faith in me, that I was strong, I'm a warrior, and that I was going to get through this. And ultimately, I have. I'm sure you and your family have thought about the people who contributed to your daughter's death. As more states are strengthening penalties against drug dealers for selling drugs tainted with fentanyl, do you think dealers should receive harsher penalties for that? You know, um, that's a difficult thing for me to answer because through our daughter's iPad and iPhone, they actually caught the man who sold her the drugs. And they had a trial in uh, Wisconsin. And after a week of the toxicologists from the DA's office and the uh, prosecution's representatives, they all agreed that she had died from a fentanyl overdose. Uh, they had a videotaped confession of the man who sold her the drugs admitting to it. And still, the state of Wisconsin found him not guilty because there was a one, uh, it was a 24 hour lapse from the time she probably died to the time we actually found her. And somebody on the jury felt that uh, that could have been ample time for her to go and find drugs from somebody else. But that was about the time she did not answer her phone and stopped talking to me. So she probably had been gone for 24 hours. What would you like justice to look like? You know, I'm a very forgiving individual. And I feel that the people who do this have an illness themselves. You know, this any kind of addiction is steeped in mental health issues. And I just feel that people need to be able to get out and get the help that they need. You know, the many dealers are drug abusers themselves. Um, I think that the government needs to step in and be more involved with uh, China and Canada and Mexico, where the fentanyl is coming from and stop the supply, and then also make the mental health available to those people who are struggling with any addiction. You know, uh, African-Americans and indigenous people are more disproportionately affected by this, yet many people don't have the resources to get the help they need. I think they need to get that help made available to them, as well as the accessibility of Narcan. There's a major drug manufacturer who's actually working with the government now to make Narcan more accessible. It's an easy uh, spray, a nasal spray to use if you uh, come upon somebody who's having a drug overdose. And um, it's not as available now as it should be. Yeah, Jan Gianna, thank you for sharing that. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And thank you also for sharing your story with us. We appreciate it. Let's add another voice to the conversation. Joining us now is the White House's National Drug Control Policy Director, Dr. Raul Gupta, the first doctor to hold this office. Dr. Gupta, welcome to 1A. Thank you for having me, Nahela. 
Dr. Gupta, how pervasive is fentanyl in the drug supply? You know, we're seeing um, some of the most dynamic drug supply environment in our nation's history to the tune that we're seeing fentanyl being mixed with or cut with almost all of the illicit drug supply that is available. So it's really become incumbent upon us, both as those that are working to help people, but also those um, who may be consuming to understand that this is a very deadly drug that may be cut with almost any illicit drug supply today. It's very difficult to separate that out from the illicit drug market. So how much more dangerous does fentanyl make illicit drugs now then? Well, for first of all, we have to understand this. this is an opioid. It is one that is up to 100 times more potent than morphine. So clearly when it's mixed in very small doses um, to a drug supply, it is potentially fatal. But also it's being done to gain profits by illicit actors. And so it becomes very important. For instance, we know from some of the stats from DEA that two out of the five pills that one gains, not from pharmacy and not from a prescription, has the likelihood of having a potential fatal dose of fentanyl in it. Think about that. That's two out of five. That's the odds of dying worse than by playing Russian roulette. And we know that fentanyl contributed to most fatal drug overdoses last year and is now the leading cause of death for adults under 50. That's also according to the CDC. What has your office done then to tackle this problem? Yeah, I think it's important when we hear the stories of Janet and Sarah, especially uh, losing a child is heartbreaking, as we just heard. So it's important that we are acting with a sense of urgency and the president has been very clear. President Biden has you know, very clearly put out a strategy that looks at the two biggest drivers, which one is creating a treatment infrastructure across our nation, one that doesn't exist. And we've been talking about it for a long time. The other one is going after drug traffickers and their profits. So, you know, we have to understand that right now, because three out of four overdose deaths and poisoning deaths that have occurred are because of illicit opioids like fentanyl, it's important to get the antidote out there. Why? Because you cannot treat people if they're not alive. And this antidote helps people save lives. So we have seen now a 37% increase in prescription for naloxone, or some people call it Narcan. We've seen prices go down. We've also seen uh, about a 20% increase in prescribing for treatment. So there has been significant changes in policy. We've talked about these for many years. We're bringing to force action where we're allowing people now to have telehealth provisions, take home provisions, uh, vans that will allow people to reach, for us to reach, by the uh, practitioners and providers, some of the most underserved and marginalized communities. And we're also looking at treating behind the walls because that's another area where we have some of the most vulnerable population in terms of um, two out of three people behind the walls have a diagnosis of substance use and people die when their release or recidivism occurs. So it's really important. And one of the things we've been doing is to use cost-effective life-saving tools to get to people no matter where they are but we are faced with challenges like inconsistent policies that often exist across the states in our nation. 
I want to get back to those inconsistent policies, but I just want to follow up with you on naloxone. Um, as we said, uh, Narcan is the brand name. I know that in November, the FDA encouraged makers of the prescription naloxone to apply for non-prescription status. Uh, and Emergent Biosolutions is also seeking an over-the-counter status from the FDA for Narcan. How important is that, that over-the-counter and accessibility to this? Well, we think that, uh, look, when we have 81,000 people a year out of 108,000 that have died because of illicit opioids like fentanyl, we just know that if naloxone was more available, more like a smoke alarm in homes or a defibrillator in communities, we would be on course to save tens of thousands of lives. So it becomes another tool in our toolbox. But I want our listeners to know, naloxone is so cost-effective in addition to saving lives that studies have shown for every dollar invested in naloxone, that's almost $2,800 return. So it's one of the most cost-effective life-saving tools. And we think we have yet to make sure that we are maximizing the use. And that's one of the reasons we put out state model laws for naloxone use for states and communities to do so. But the fact is today, where you live, your zip codes gets to decide where you, whether you live or die when you're suffering from an overdose or poisoning, and that should just not be the case. Dr. Gupta, you also talked about sort of the patchwork of laws that exist uh, across the state and local municipalities. How is the Biden administration at the federal level trying to help think about the fact that drug policy often moves slowly uh, and how we can do a better, faster job responding to an illicit drug supply that's rapidly changing and evolving? Yeah, I think we have to look at this issue. Um, I'm a physician. I've seen so many patients that some have survived. I've gone through sometimes not for weeks and months uh, that I had to reverse an overdose at every emergency room shift. I've seen patients on the floor in the office. So it's really important when you look at keeping people at the center of the effort. At the same time, we also have to understand this is a challenge that presents a threat to our nation's economy, security, and prosperity. Why? Because estimates are that we are losing $1.5 trillion a year. We're losing significant elements of our labor force. And people who are dying oftentimes are between 25 and 54 years of age. So our approach should be one to change drug policy, not just for the sake of drug policy, but also for the sake of the future of this nation. We need to make sure that we have a robust workforce. We have people of parenting age, and most, most importantly, we have a healthy population and a future. So one of the things that we wanna make sure that is happening is we have policies like naloxone that exist that allow naloxone to be available anywhere um, and, and everywhere. So people don't have to worry about that. Same thing goes for treatment. The fact is today, less than one out of 10 people who need treatment for substance use are able to access it. Now, the president has called for universal access by 2025. If we take these actions, here's the thing. Our estimates are we'll save over 150,000 lives between now and then. So this has one of the few things that has an impact directly on saving lives and ensuring prosperity for the nation. So we're working to ensure that there's increased access to treatment, but it doesn't stop at treatment. It's about housing. It's about ensuring that people have the ability to get food security, transportation, childcare, all of those wraparound services that we often consider 
um, uh, social determinants of health that are so important to making sure someone gets into recovery but stays in recovery. Dr. Gupta, can I just ask you, as a physician, you're the first physician to hold this office. I just wanted to ask you one final question about how you think Americans should be thinking about addiction. We need to think about addiction as a brain disease that impacts your entire body, your community, your family and friends. It is no longer, unfortunately, we deal with stigma a lot where we think it is a disease of choice. It is not. We need to consider this um, like we considered cancer today, unfortunately, 100 years ago, which was highly stigmatized disease. But what we did as America, we woke up, we stood to it. We invested some of the highest amounts of money in research and development, and we have some of the most cutting-edge treatments that we export throughout the world and save lives. We need to do the same for addiction. We need to destigmatize it and harm reduction strategies like uh, strips for fentanyl drug checking, um, naloxone and syringe service programs help us meet people where they are and reduce those and eliminate that stigma. But we also need to not take 100 years to get there. So it's a sense of urgency that we must be working with to be able to save lives because American is dying every five minutes around the clock. That's the director of the White House Office for National Drug Control Policy, Dr. Raul Gupta. Dr. Gupta, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Nyla. Sarah Laurel is still with us. She runs Savage Sisters Recovery, Inc. in Philadelphia. And joining us now is Pranav Prabhanabam. He runs a SOAR initiative in Columbus, Ohio. SOAR stands for Safety, Outreach, Autonomy, Respect. Welcome to the show, Pranav. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah and Pranav, I wanted you to just react to what you heard Dr. Gupta say, uh, first of all. Sarah, what resonated with you? Uh I like that he's saying there needs to be a sense of urgency behind it, but I personally think that the next logical step for uh, this country is ending prohibition. You can't tackle stigma while also having strong iron law prohibition laws in place. Um, And as far as the fentanyl and now in Philadelphia, we have xylazine. The more that we hyper-focus on criminalizing substances, we see more potent deadly substances infiltrate the criminal drug market and supply. So I'm moving towards hearing more speak about ending prohibition and creating safe supply within this country. And I've yet to hear anybody really talk about that. I mean, at a higher level. Thank you for that. Pranav, what do you think about the conversation around safe supply? Absolutely, yes. Um, I would absolutely echo what Sarah said. Um, I think that the Biden administration has um, done an admirable job uh, advocating for um, things like naloxone, fentanyl test strips. Um, But where I see our policy missing is that talk of a safe supply and ending uh, prohibition and the war on drug users. So I think it's important to recognize that Fentanyl itself isn't the enemy. It is just one manifestation of this prohibitionary war on drug users that our country has been engaging in for decades. So where, uh, while we need to provide naloxone and fentanyl test strips, um, as well as things like safe consumption sites, which are an exciting tool um, being implemented in places like Philadelphia, um, what will really end the overdose crisis and save lives Uh, is really addressing the root causes, which is the contaminated drug supply that is caused by prohibition. So uh, what we're seeing now with 
things like fentanyl is exactly what happened in the 1920s with alcohol, is that when you have a lack of a safe supply, it incentivizes dealers to use the cheapest materials possible to cut their drugs with. Um, so in this case, that's fentanyl. But uh, as Sarah mentioned, in Ohio as well, we're starting to see things like xylazine, which is an animal tranquilizer um, that can cause abscesses and negative health consequences in people who use drugs. Um, and as long as we continue to criminalize, uh, we will continue to see substances like fentanyl and xylazine and whatever comes next contaminate the drug supply and continue to kill our people. We're discussing addiction and the fentanyl crisis. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. We're discussing the rise in fentanyl deaths and harm reduction tools to curb fatal overdoses. And we've been remembering some of the loved ones you lost. Michelle left us this message. I lost my son, Bryce, to a fentanyl poisoning on March 12th of 2020, right before COVID started. He was doing seemingly well in recovery. And as we know, recovery sometimes results in relapse. He had one relapse and ended up not surviving. We're speaking with harm reductionist Sarah Laurel of Savage Sisters Recovery, Inc. in Philadelphia and Pranav Pabhanabhan of the SOAR Initiative in Columbus, Ohio. Pranav, can you tell us a little bit about Columbus, Ohio and what it looks like in terms of overdoses and how prevalent fentanyl is in your community? Absolutely. So Ohio currently has the second highest rate of drug overdose deaths in the country. Uh, But it's also important to note that Uh, According to a study done by our partners at Harm Reduction Ohio, uh, we are only around 35th in terms of actual drug use. So fentanyl is widespread in the drug supply uh, in Ohio, as Dr. Gupta mentioned. Uh, Anything from uh, cocaine to meth to counterfeit pills uh, potentially are laced with fentanyl. So what we do is we provide fentanyl test strips. Um, as well as other tools, including naloxone and syringes, to uh, meet the immediate needs of people who use drugs, and especially people who recreationally use drugs. So we started as an organization targeting college students at Ohio State, um, eventually expanding throughout the state. Um, and we especially want to target people who, are, uh, who may not be aware that any substance um, that they take could potentially have fentanyl, as well as Um, other cutting agents. Um, So fentanyl test strips are um, a tool that are increasingly important um, to provide to our community. Um, I I just want to ask you, how do those test strips work? Yeah. um, So they're a very simple and easy to use strip of paper, um, just like a litmus test. So you add a little bit of water to any substance and dip the fentanyl test strip in it. And within 15 seconds, it will give you a positive or negative result. And how hard is it to get those? Because I know that fentanyl test strips are still considered illegal drug paraphernalia in 19 states, according to Stat News. We actually just had a a recent victory in Ohio with uh, the passage of Senate Bill 288, which uh, legalized fentanyl test strips um, as well as expanded our Good Samaritan law. Um, So... This will hopefully make it a lot easier to get fentanyl test strips, but a major issue that we face here in Ohio is that despite the policies passed at the federal level to make 
the uh, to increase access to fentanyl test strips, it takes a while for those policies to trickle down to conservative states like Ohio. So despite the fact that the Biden administration in April 2021 announced that federal funds could be used to purchase test strips, uh, we're still facing barriers in Ohio, um, even with the recent passage of this law, um, that we are not quite able to use federal funds to purchase test strips. So this is a major operational hurdle for us um, because the vast majority of the funds that we receive are not able to be used to purchase test strips. So we still have to really lean on our community and it's a community-led effort um, to get donations and support from um, those within our community to make these test strips accessible. We got an email from Suzanne that says, I can't understand the debate about supervised consumption sites where the data seems to show that access to a CSC can help people get access to treatment, recovery, employment, housing, et cetera. Is this a not in my backyard thing? Sarah, I know that Philadelphia has been working on opening an overdose prevention site where people can use illegal drugs under medical supervision. But right now it's not open because there's a legal battle with the Department of Justice What do you think of having safe consumption sites in your community? I think that it would be very beneficial for the community as a whole to have a safe space for individuals to uh, consume their substances, for individuals to reverse potentially fatal overdoses. And I, you know, I recently read an op-ed that said, you know, what kind of an example are we giving to our children? But you walk the streets of Kensington and You have hundreds of unhoused individuals consuming substances in an unsafe way. And um, I think we should offer all human beings a little bit more dignity and safety, regardless of their choices. And a safe consumption site or an overdose prevention site uh, would do that. Every single overdose is a policy failure. Pranav, I know your group has created an app to track bad batches of drugs in your community. How does that work? Yeah, so we have a deadly batch alert text system that we created in 2020, and this was based on similar systems in places like Baltimore and Vancouver. So this is a two-way anonymous communication platform that hopes to bridge the information gap between public health agencies who have data on overdoses and which communities are experiencing a high overdose burden and those on the ground, uh, people who use drugs, who generate their own data with tools like fentanyl test strips, um, that really creates this real-time picture of what's happening in black market drug supplies. So every time we give out a fentanyl test strip, we encourage folks to report the result of that test, especially if it's positive, through our secure anonymous text platform. And we take in all of that data, aggregate it, and cross-check it with the overdose data that we get from our partners at public health agencies throughout the state. So by combining these two forms of data in a way that protects the anonymity of people who use drugs, we can really proactively address uh, where overdoses are happening and let folks know uh, about what deadly batches to watch out for before an overdose surge occurs. Pranav, you've talked about uh, the idea of drug legalization. What do you say to people who would be opposed to this and say that this would cause more problems than it would help? Yeah, so drug legalization is a common sense and evidence-based policy. Um, We've seen in other places that have decriminalized drugs, um, countries like Portugal and Switzerland, that 
the number of overdose deaths has dropped dramatically. Um, and places closer to home, um, we've seen similar effects. And this is based on um, a law called the Iron Law Prohibition that was created in the 1980s by a drug policy researcher named Richard Cowan, which simply put states that the harder the criminalization, the harder the drug. Um, so by providing a safe supply, we're basically taking the rug out from under um, dealers who are cutting uh, their supply with substances like fentanyl. Um, and we, ne we need the safe supply um, because we know that drug use has been a constant throughout our human history. We're never going to address the overdose crisis by simply telling people not to do drugs. Um, so the safest way to keep people alive um, while still protecting their autonomy is um, through safe consumption sites and through a safe supply. What more do you need in terms of resources or support or policy do you need to do your work that we haven't talked about? Sarah? Uh, we have no harm reduction funding. So we would like anybody, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the federal government, if, you know, we've applied for several grants, but given that we are, uh, I would say, essentially a peer-led organization with a bunch of individuals with lived experience, we've been denied a lot of uh, grant funding. And um, even though we have 501c3 status, I think that there should be a seat at the table for people like us who are boots on the ground doing the work and have lived experience. And at this point, we'll take whatever we can get because we are begging for money on Facebook to keep doing the work that we're doing. Sarah, thanks for sharing that. If you or someone you know needs help with addiction, you can call the free and confidential treatment referral line 1-800-662-HELP or visit findtreatment.gov. Today's producer was June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo, in for Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.